The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We are in the midst of a series this summer on sanctification, on personal holiness, on the need to become increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, uh, on the importance of being a holy people. We need to be a people who are making progress in Christ-likeness. God has called us, He's justified us, and one day He will glorify us. And in between those two events is our time of sanctification, and we want to be looking at this topic for a few more weeks yet this summer before we go back into Romans chapter 12. We began looking at this topic in general just a a few weeks ago and looking at some of the the dynamics and the nature of progressive sanctification. And recently, we've turned the corner into some of the more specific, some specific topics related to progressive sanctification that we want to be addressing. And so, Appreciate Joe preaching on our need to be avoiding the temptations of the world a few weeks ago, and Bob preaching on the importance of godly relationships, and then Dan preaching on the importance of our love for Christ. This morning, I, I want to get very specific again with you and turn to the issue of sexual purity as it relates to our sanctification. I think this is a critical topic for us to address, and the reason for that is because I am convinced that one of the greatest enemies facing your sanctification and mine are the temptations that come with sexual immorality. It could be subtle temptations that come in the form of just thoughts or glances or things that roll around in your mind or books that you might be reading. It could be even more more serious than that in pornography or watching movies with immorality in them or even aggressive, serious violations in this area of engaging in immorality outside of marriage. There are a number of expressions of this great sin, and I am convinced that one of the greatest hazards, one of the greatest threats and adversaries to your sanctification and to my sanctification and to the health of this church lies in the arena of sexual temptations. And I know that to be the case because we live in a culture that is enraptured with this sin. We live in a culture that has taken what God has designed to be something beautiful and precious and wonderful in the context of a marriage between a husband and wife, and our culture has taken that and twisted it into something that's dirty and vile and filthy and perverted. This is our culture. This is what our culture does. This is what defines our culture. It has desensitized us to the sanctity of sex within marriage. And you can just look in the culture. I don't need to give you a lot of examples here of of how this is happening, but homosexuality has become widely accepted in our culture. The transgender movement has gained much traction in our culture today. Words like promiscuous have essentially been removed from our vocabulary. Words like immorality have been replaced with sexually active, and the word adultery has been replaced with affair, and the word pornography has been replaced with the word adult entertainment. And so what's taking place in our culture is just a vile perversion of a beautiful thing that God has designed between a husband and a wife. And you're not immune. You're not immune. And I'm not immune, and our church is not immune, and I know that because as I hear what's going on in the church, I hear of how this is pervading the church today and how much this is filtering into Christians' lives. We hear about a vast percentage of young men and an increasing percentage of young women who are immersed in pornography and have been from an early age in the church. And it seems like every week we hear of another pastor who has been in a prominent position of church leadership who fails morally in this area. Just this summer, we've heard of a major pastor in the Chicago area, a large megachurch pastor who is now out of ministry because of that. And just the last month, we learned of a disqualification of a pastor on the West Coast who had two affairs, someone who was an adjunct professor at the seminary that Joe and I both went to. This stuff starts to hit home. It starts to hit families. 
and it starts to wreck marriages and destroy the church. And added to all this is not just the cultural influence, but within us lies these, these lusts and these temptations and, and these issues within our own heart that are, that are attracted to those things. And so not only must we battle the culture, we must battle our own lusts and our own desires that wage war against our soul. So I, I'm convinced that any series on sanctification must at some point deal with this issue of sexual morality. So I want to do that this morning by taking you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It is what I believe to be one of the most clear, concise, and instructive passages on this, in, in this issue in the whole Bible. It is, it is Paul in one of his most pointed teachings on this issue. He doesn't mince his words here. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't skirt the issue. Paul goes head on and tackles this issue in the lives of the Thessalonians and for us as well. So I'd like to read the first eight verses. I'd like you to follow along as I do so. Verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 4, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how to walk how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul's very clear here. And I want you to notice that in verses 1 and 2, he starts generally just talking about the importance of a holy life. He says in verse 1, I told you, you received instruction from us on how you ought to walk and that you ought to please God. So he begins by saying, listen, I've reminded you and I've taught you about the critical importance of a holy life. And now I want you to excel still more at the end of verse 1, to abound more and more in this lifestyle of holiness and not living in secret and, and not having a double life and not living one way in private and another way in public. He says, I want you to live a life of mature faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a call against spiritual apathy. This is an admonition against spiritual complacency. This is him urging them on. He's eager that they mature in their faith and continue their growth pattern. Verse 2, he says, you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He says that the things I taught you when I was with you didn't just come from me. They came from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and I was speaking those things on the basis of his authority. So they're actually God's words to you, not just mine. So he's urging them to a lifestyle of holiness. And then starting in verse 3, he turns the corner and he gets very specific. Very specific on the issue of sexual purity. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul says at the beginning of verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And I love the fact that he says, point blank, this is God's will for you. Have you ever wondered what God's will for your life is? Of course we have. The question I think I was asked most as a college pastor for almost nine years was, what is God's will for my life? How do I know what God wants me to do? How, how, do, how am I supposed to know what God's purposes are for my life are? And in asking that question, almost always behind that question was the question, uh, who am I supposed to marry and what job am I supposed to have and what career should I pursue and where should I live and what house should I buy? That's a little bit different. That's the question of where's God's plan for my life. That's not found in the Bible, but God's will is. God's will is very specifically stated for us. In fact, look over in chapter 5, verse 18. Just look over one chapter into verse 18. He says, In everything, give thanks, 
For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He says it in chapter 5, verse 18, this is God's will. And then back again in chapter 4, verse 3, this is God's will. It's stated clearly. You don't need to go discover it. You don't need to go figure it out. You don't need to do kind of wacky, goofy things that people do to try and discover God's will, like listen to a still, small voice and try and read the signs and put out fleeces for God to try and give you some indication. You don't have to do any of that. His will is very clear. This is God's will for you. And what is it? Verse 3, he says, your sanctification. God's will for you is to be a holy person. God's will for you is to be a godly man or to be a godly woman. And so if you want to know what God wants you to be doing in your life, this is it. More important than any of the major decisions that you have to make in life is this issue. Are you being holy, sanctified, godly? That is God's will for your life. In fact, I want you to notice that this word sanctification, which means to be set apart from sin to holiness, occurs three times in the very text that we're looking at this morning. You can see it in verse 3, the passage I just read. You can see it in verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And you can see it in verse 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. In fact, if you go to the next chapter, look over in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 23, he says something very similar. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You get the idea? Sanctification, 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 holiness, godliness. This is God's will for you. And one area, specific area, that we need to address is this area of the sexual arena. And so I want to zero in this morning on verses 3 through 8, and I want to pose to you the question, are you being as holy as you can be in the sexual arena? Not seeing how close to the line you can get without getting burned or without getting caught, but are you being as holy as you can be in this entire arena of your life? And to do that, I want to give you three instructions and three reasons to avoid sexual immorality. We'll spend most of our time on the instructions, and then we'll wrap it up briefly with the reasons. So let's start, first of all, with these three instructions to avoid sexual immorality. Three instructions that are going to come right from our text on why it's critical that we avoid immorality in our life. Here's the first one. Number one, don't even flirt with sexual immorality. Don't even flirt with sexual immorality. Look at verse 3 again. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, and then he tells us specifically, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Here's the negative side. He tackles the negative side first. He's going to come and deal with the the positive side in verse 4. But here in verse 3, he wants to deal first with the negative side, the things that we must avoid, the things that we must run away from. And so he says that we need to be those as believers who abstain from sexual immorality. To abstain means to hold yourself back, to keep yourself far away from to keep your distance from, to not even go near, to not flirt with, to don't play with, to not see how close you can get to it, to not touch it. It, The idea here is you run as far and as fast away from this vice as you can. And I want you to notice what he says. He says you need to abstain from sexual immorality, from porneia. That's where we get our word pornography. But Paul doesn't have in mind here just pornography. Certainly that would be included in this term, sexual immorality, but it's not limited to pornography. What he has in mind here are any sexual activities that deviate from the one man, one woman relationship. That's what he's getting at. This term, porneia, is is an umbrella term that encompasses a host of all kinds of sexual practices that would be outside of the circle of God's revealed will. It's any hint of sexual immorality. So let me give you a list. It could include premarital sex. It could include definitely adultery. 
It would include homosexuality and bestiality and incest and lustful thoughts and pedophilia and fornication and transvestism. It would include all of those things and a host of other things that would fall under the umbrella of porneia. Why does he need to talk about this? He needs to talk about this because in that culture, in the Greco-Roman culture, Paul was ministering in a very sexually perverse environment. If you think things are bad now, if you think the culture in America is bad in relation to this, it is, but it's not as bad as what it was in that culture. It wasn't, it's not as bad currently as it was it was in that day in the ancient Near East. It was a debased culture that was rife with all kinds of sinful sexual practices. In fact, Paul was likely writing this letter to the Thessalonians from the city of Corinth. And it's very possible that as Paul is penning the very words that we are reading this morning, he was looking out his window and he saw acts of immorality taking place on the very streets outside his place. It's very possible that as Paul is writing this letter, he could see the temple for the goddess of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, Aphrodite, where there were a thousand prostitutes, male and female prostitutes, who were selling themselves to enable people to allow them to engage in some sort of communion with the gods. This is a very pagan, wicked place. In fact, there was a term that was coined in that day to Corinthianize. And to Corinthianize meant to engage in and act like a Corinthian, to engage in the kind of moral corruption that would have been indicative of that kind of day. And so this is the culture that Paul is writing in, and although Thessalonica was probably not as bad as Corinth, certainly it was filled with all kinds of lewd and immoral practices. It was part of that, that culture, and there was a seaport there that would have brought all kinds of behavior in that would have been inappropriate. In fact, it is very likely that many of the people in the Thessalonian church had actually been saved out of this lifestyle. It's very possible that many of them had actually been redeemed out of the lifestyle of paganism and out of the lifestyle of of immorality and out of a sexually immoral background. It's possible that just even a few weeks and months before their conversion, they were living in this kind of immorality. And so, they're believers now. They've been saved. And Paul knows that despite their conversion, despite the fact that they've been rescued from such practices, despite the fact that they are a, a testimony of God's transforming power through the gospel, Paul knows that it's very possible for them to be tempted to go back, to fall back into those practices and to go back into that lifestyle and to, and to go back into those temptations. So he wants to prevent them from doing that. He's concerned. He's concerned for for their spiritual growth and their holiness. And so he says in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from this, that you run from this, that you make every break from this sin possible. It's like he, he puts up a danger, do not enter sign. He, he puts the, the yellow warning tape out and says, this is a restricted area, don't go there. Run. Flee. This is consistent with what the rest of the Scriptures teach. Proverbs 5, verses 8 and 9 say, keep your way far from the immoral person. Ephesians 5, verse 3 says, immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you must not even be a hint of this named among you. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, flee immorality, run as fast as you can from this sin. Colossians 3 says, consider yourself dead to this sin. If you're in Christ, you've died to this. Christ died for you. Christ went to the cross and paid for your sins, including this one. You are dead now to the sin, so consider yourself dead to it. Run, flee evacuate the area, get out of there, run as fast as you can from this sin. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 7. Hold your finger here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and go over to Proverbs chapter 7. 
Proverbs 7. I want to give you an illustration of how not to do this. Solomon, in his wisdom, has given us a marvelous picture of the man who fails to heed the kind of warnings that Paul is giving here. He, he gives a picture, he paints a picture for us of, of the kind of person who lacks sense and who is unwilling to, to run and abstain from this kind of sin. So look at Proverbs chapter 7. He begins by describing to his son the need to, to listen to him in this area, to pay attention to these things. And then he describes this picture. Look at verse 6. For at the window of my house... I looked out through the lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. He takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness, and behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She's boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares. She lurks at every corner. She seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you. I've spread my couch for coverings with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come. Let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him as the moon he will come home. And with many persuasions, she entices him. And with her flattering lips, she seduces him. And watch this, verse 22. Suddenly, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know it will cost him his life. He should have run. He shouldn't have followed her. He shouldn't have gone that way. He should have made the completely opposite tracks in the opposite direction. He should have done what verse 25 says, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways and do not stray into her paths. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's the picture Paul's getting at. Not to be like that individual, but instead to run as fast and as hard as you can to draw a hard line in the sand on this issue because any toying with sexual sins is off limits for the Christian were to avoid it entirely, Paul says. And not just the acts, the thoughts, the thinking. The lust. You know what Paul or Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, if you've had lustful thoughts and you've pursued those in your mind, it's as if you've committed the act itself. Now, you haven't, and the consequences are different, but the action or the attitude that is behind the action is almost as bad as the action itself. So what Jesus is getting at and what Paul is getting at here is that we must attack this issue at the level of our hearts. At the level of our affections, we need to be radical. Jesus even goes on to say, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. And if your right hand makes you stumble, then cut it off. Why? Because there's a whole lot more at stake than just your bodies. So I ask you this morning, are you doing that? Is that your approach to this arena of potential sin in your life? Have you drawn hard lines? Are, are, are you doing hard work? Are you doing this battle in your hearts? Are you engaged in fighting this sin, not just at the action level, but at the heart level? And are your affections being uh, paid attention to by you? And are you feeding your affections with the things of the God or the things of this world? Someone has well said that the person who falls into sexual sin does not fall very far. And by that, that, they mean that the person who engages in sexual sin has made a series of compromises along the way to get them to that point so that the final act to the act of sexual sin is a very small step because in their heart and their mind, they've been cultivating the attitude and the affections and the desires and the lusts all along so that by the time they get to the actual temptation and they give in, it's not very far to go. They've rationalized, they've justified Beloved, 
Are you abstaining from sexual immorality? Are you fighting this at every level? Are you guarding your eyes? Are you guarding your hearts? Are you guarding your minds? Is there any place where you've subtly been rationalizing this? Oh, this is okay because I'm a pretty strong Christian. I I can entertain myself with this for a time because I can come back. Or have you been rationalizing, thinking, you know, this is okay because there's no one here and no one knows, and so I'm going to be able to maintain my integrity despite that fact that I'm doing this because no one knows about it. Small, subtle rationalizations will eventually lead you into sexual sin. And so Paul says, abstain. Don't even flirt with it. Don't even get near it. Run hard, run fast away from it. Number two, there is a second instruction that you need to be aware of in relation to this whole issue of avoiding sexual morality. And it is, number two, you need to exercise regular self-control. So don't, on the one hand, don't even flirt with sexual immorality. That's the, that's the negative side of this. And then he turns the corner in verse 4, and he becomes more positive, And he says, but do exercise regular self-control. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So negatively, don't pursue this. Negatively, abstain from this. On the positive side, you need to know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. This is biblical sanctification. Biblical sanctification is always a put-off and put-on process. You've, on the one hand, always got to be putting off the vices that will lead you into sin. And on the other hand, you need to be replacing those vices with the corresponding virtues that will then facilitate a lifestyle of holiness. It's not enough just to stop one thing and not engage in the holy practices that are consistent with it. You need to be doing both, putting off and putting on. And so he says, here's how you put on. You need to know how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, what does that mean? Let me get a little technical with you for just a moment. There are two interpretations of this passage. This this verse 4, there are two possible ways to see this passage. Let me tell you what they are, and then I'll tell you what I think is the correct one. One possible interpretation is that Paul is saying here that you need to know how to acquire a wife in sanctification and honor. That's one possible interpretation. And so the idea here is that You need to know how to go from single to married in a godly way or a holy way, or the opposite or the other part of that could be that you need to get married in order to deal with your sexual temptations. So one uh, one translation says it this way, each of you should know how to live with your wife in a holy and honorable way. And another one says that each of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor. So that's one very popular interpretation. It deals with getting married or in the process of getting married, how you go to get involved in marriage and how you go from single to married. Why do people think that that's a possibility? Let me give you two reasons why. And it relates to the words possess and vessel. So the word possess could be translated acquire, and the word vessel can be taken in some cases to refer to a wife. And many people at this point will go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where it says to husbands, they need to live with their wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. She's a weaker vessel. And so people think, well, okay, Peter is referring to the wife there as a weaker vessel. So if Paul is using the same term here in verse 4, vessel, it must mean wife. Therefore, Paul is saying you must know how to acquire a wife in godliness and sanctification. I don't think that's the actual right interpretation, but that is a possible interpretation based on that text. Here's the other interpretation. The other interpretation is this, that you learn how to control your body, that you learn how to control your body. That's the alternate interpretation here. So verse 4 would say something like that you learn how to control or possess or exercise authority over your own body. 
And I think actually that's the correct interpretation. I think that's most faithful to what Paul is getting at here in 1 Thessalonians 4. I don't think he's just narrowing in on how a man is to get a wife because I don't think he's talking here just to husbands or just to men. And I don't think he's talking about the fact that marriage always secures freedom from sexual temptations. And if he did, he would be contradicting himself in 1 Corinthians 7 where he talked about the blessings and the value of singleness. Added to that is the fact that the word vessel is often translated as body in the rest of the scriptures. And so I think the best translation is the one that would say something like that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. I think he's talking about all believers here. He's talking to men and women, young and old. He's talking to all people and he's telling them, you must learn how to control your bodies. And notice how he qualifies this. Verse 4, you need to know how to do this in sanctification and honor. You need to, to view your body in such a way that it's an instrument of sanctification. It's an instrument of holiness. It's an instrument that you give to honorable purposes. Think about this with me for a moment. Do you, do you realize that your body has been given to you by God? to serve Him? You know that's that's the primary purpose of your body? To be used as an instrument to facilitate God's purposes, to be used as a means by carrying out God's plans for His ways and what He's wanting to accomplish in your life and around the world. That's why you have a body. Not to satisfy your own fleshly lusts and pursue your own lustful pursuits and engage in other immoral ways. No, your body is a gift from God to you to extend His kingdom and accomplish His purposes. That's why you have a body. Now, the world doesn't get that. The world doesn't understand that. But Christians do. Romans 12 verse 1 says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Your body is meant to be a living sacrifice which you offer to the King of kings and Lord of lords as a holy sacrifice, meaning I want to live a life of holy purposes. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 say, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. So that's exactly what Paul's getting at. Paul is saying here that Your body needs to be an instrument and a vehicle for holiness. And if that's the case, then you need to make sure that it's controlled in regard to its sexual lusts. And notice how Paul describes this in verse 5. Look down at verse 5. Here's the contrast. The verse 5 says the contrast. The contrast is not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So here's the contrast. As believers, we exercise control over our bodies by the power of the Spirit to engage in holiness in opposite to the world. In contrast to the world, to the Gentiles, he says, who do not know God. They don't know God. They don't love God. They don't honor God. They don't have a desire to obey God. There's nothing within them that wants to honor God. They live for themselves. And so he says, you need to not live like that. Not in lustful passions. Not in your passions running moment but moment by moment and living for the moment. Not in passionate pursuits of experiences that will gratify your sexual appetite. And that's what the world does. Just look around you and know that that's how the world conducts itself. Look at the, the Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at the perversity of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at how the unregenerate in Romans chapter 1 are described by degrading passions and God giving them over to those things. That's how the world lives. And Paul says, you must not live like that. You must not lower yourself to the practices of the world. You must not subject yourself to the society's immoral temptations. You, you must not stoop to the depravity of the culture. You must not allow the influence of a pagan society to creep into your heart and mind. You must not dabble in the outskirts of the sin. You must draw hard and fast lines and not see how close to the line you can get, but to see as far away from the line as you can. So is that you? 
Is that how you're conducting yourself? Have you drawn a hard line in the sand? Do you keep your distance from it? Or has the line gone soft and are the borders of your convictions fluid such that they shift on the basis of your shifting emotions and desires? We're to protect our purity. We're to exercise self-control. We're to be those who offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. I remember a number of years ago reading about a little animal in Europe named uh, an ermine. Uh, It's a little ferret-like creature, and I remember it's kind of stuck with me all these years, uh, uh, some of the unique characteristics of this animal. And an ermine in the summer has brown fur and in the winter has white fur. And there's something very unique about this animal that it will protect its white coat against anything that will soil it. Very interesting. And so uh, hunters who kill the animal for their fur, will actually take advantage of this characteristic of the animal. They, instead of snaring this animal, they actually find his home and they smear it with all kinds of dirt and grime and nasty stuff, the outside of it and the inside of it. They just smear it with all kinds of grime and muck. And then they let the dogs loose and they, the dogs find this creature and it runs back towards its home and then it stops. And it doesn't go in its house because it doesn't want to get its white coat dirty. Isn't that funny? And unfortunately, there's not a happy ending to the story because the hunters get it, and you're waiting for some great, wonderful thing. They kill it, and they sell its fur, so that's basically what happens. But you get the point. This animal is so committed to its purity, it will stop. It, it, it It will... it will do anything to avoid being contaminated by its surroundings. What a picture. What an illustration of what you and I need to be like. Do you have that much control over your sexual urges? Number three, don't take advantage of others. The third instruction is take advantage of others. Verse 6, look what he says in verse 6. He says, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. Paul says, on the one hand, make sure you are not even flirting with sexual immorality. Number two, make sure you're exercising regular control over your bodies as an instrument of sanctification and holiness. And then he returns to the negative, verse three, he says, don't take advantage, verse six, don't take advantage of others. Because what he's saying is when you engage in sexual immorality, you do two things. Number one, you transgress that individual and others and you defraud them. You sin against them, you transgress them against them, you sin against them, and you defraud them in this matter. Some commentators actually think at this point Paul is changing subjects, and he's talking about business practices and unjust business practices and how you defraud business partners and take money that's not yours. They they think that the defraud here relates to unjust business practices, but that's not what he's talking about. He is dealing here still with the issue of sexual immorality. And he's saying, if you engage in sexual sin, you're sinning against another person or persons, and you are defrauding them. You are taking something from them. You are cheating them out of something that doesn't belong to you. This is serious. To engage in sexual immorality is to defraud Literally to go beyond the bounds, to step over the line, to take what is not yours, to cheat someone, to selfishly and greedily take something for personal gain and pleasure at someone else's expenses. Something else belongs to someone else and you've taken it for yourself. That's transgressing them and that is defrauding them. Let me just say it this way. Sexual immorality always results in cheating someone out of something. You engage in sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage, either before you're married or in the confines of marriage, you are cheating someone out of something. 
whether it's the person you're engaged with or your spouse or your family or your children or your church or other family members or anyone else who's connected to that entire situation, you are defrauding them. One commentator says it this way. He says, any illegitimate sexual relationship has in it the potential for social complications that cannot be calculated. In other words, if you choose to engage in this kind of lifestyle, you're going to create a web of social issues that are going to come back to haunt you because of the fractured relationships that come as a result of this sin. Let's just face the fact. Sexual sin has broken more marriages. It has shattered more homes. It has caused more heartache. And it has destroyed more lives than drugs and alcohol combined. It results in cheating, lying, stealing, sometimes killing. It causes bitterness, hatred, slander, gossip, forgiveness. Sexual sin destroys relationships because you sin against people and you defraud them. I told you in the introduction about a pastor in the West Coast who just in the last couple weeks, has confessed to sinning in this area. He's broken. He's repentant. I'm interested in this because I I know people at this church or have been been at this church. I've been at the seminary where he's taught. And so I've been very interested, and my heart has kind of been engaged in this issue. He recently, just last week, issued a confession letter. I want to read a portion to you. His heart is broken, he is repentant, but I want you to listen to the number of lives that have been impacted by this. To my wife and family members, the elders, and the congregation of X Church, the faculty of X Seminary, and to my friends and colleagues, both near and around the world. Several years ago, prior to the inception of X Church, I strayed from my wedding vows, breaking the covenantal bond I made to my dear wife 36 years ago. More recently, I again violated my marriage commitment. In both instances, I engaged in adulterous relationships that were nothing less than acts of defiance to the will of my God and Father, as well as expressions of profound ingratitude for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that I prize so dearly. I confess this sin, and I take full responsibility for it. There are no justifications, excuses, or rationalizations for my behavior. I, in acts of idolatry, chose sin over God. I'm profoundly ashamed at the enormity of my rebellion, as well as the hypocrisy of exercising ministry while cloaking my sin in the shadows. I'm broken by the magnitude of my offenses to God, the devastation I have inflicted upon my wife the grief brought to bear upon my children, the disappointment I have produced among the people with whom I have been privileged to share ministry. Though it is entirely undeserved, I humbly ask you to forgive me for my betrayal of your trust and friendship. With each passing day, the fresh awareness of this betrayal breaks my heart in greater and deeper ways, leaving me with nothing but a hope of the accomplishments of the cross to which I desperately cling because of my sin, I have disqualified myself from the office of elder. Furthermore, I, will know, uh, I have no desire to pursue ministry of any kind. My focus is entirely directed at making right the very thing I have ignored for too long, the well-being of our marriage. I'm certain that my sin has brought waves of divergent emotions in many of you, hurt, confusion, sorrow, and anger, all of these appropriate responses to my failures that your Heavenly Father understands. Moment by moment, I feel the heavy weight of inflicting them upon you. If, however, I may appeal to your mercy in Jesus Christ, dear friends, allow me to ask you four things. Number one, please direct your anger and frustration at me while extending love and support to my children who have responded to my repentance and confession with kindness and compassion, and especially to my wife. Though I have failed her egregiously, I love her deeply and desperately. With God's help, our family will survive this season and eventually thrive for God's glory. Number two, please pray for the elders of X Church. I have wounded these brothers deeply, and now a great and unexpected responsibility rests upon their shoulders. Number three, please pray for the congregation of X Church as they navigate the difficulties of moving on. And number four, never doubt the gospel of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. 
I have failed you profoundly, my dear friends, and I do plead for your forgiveness. I love you, albeit with a love that has been marred by a great failure, but the gospel of Jesus Christ will never fail you. Fail you. The fact is, it is greatest glory proves most obvious in the context of sin and failure. In this case, my own great sin and failure. I appreciate his heart, appreciate his contriteness, his brokenness. But do you notice how many people are affected? A wife, kids, church elders, an entire church, a seminary, and people around the world. You can't engage in the sin and expect the consequences to be kept close to you. You will transgress other people and you will defraud other people if you choose to engage in this sin. And so Paul says, don't take advantage of others. I'm convinced, maybe not, I wish I could be convinced that if people would sit and think about the ramifications of their sinful choices, that perhaps they would stop. Perhaps it would be something that would compel them to avoid heading down that path. I'm I'm sure that if a Christian would take some time to seriously trace down the pathway, the implications and the consequences that would come from this kind of sin, perhaps it would stop them in their tracks at their moment of deciding whether to engage in that sin or not. Brothers and sisters, think. Think about it. Think about the broken relationships, the broken family, the distrust, the broken hearts that could result. Those are three instructions. Very quickly, as we wrap this up, three reasons to avoid sexual immorality. I know we, didn't have, we won't have a lot of time for this, but it's pretty straightforward. Three reasons to avoid sexual immorality. Number one, it invites God's punishment. It invites God's punishment. Look at the end of verse 6. Verse 6 says that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you now. Look at that phrase. God is the avenger in all these things. God will exact justice. God will pour out His judgment on this. Even in a believer, though they will not be judged for their sin, they could incur the wrath of God's discipline And if you're an unbeliever engaged in this sin, God will bring condemnation into your life. God is the avenger. He will exact justice for all sin, including this one. Number two, it contradicts God's calling. It contradicts God's calling. Look at verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has called you to a lifestyle of holiness. He has literally called you out of the darkness. He has summoned you with sovereign grace and brought you to himself, regenerating you, giving you a new heart, giving you a new life, granting you eyes to see and a new heart so that you can live a life of holiness. And when you engage in this kind of sin, you are missing God's calling for your life. Look what he's called you to. Verse 7, he's called you not to impurity. He's called you to sanctification. Number three, it rejects God's revelation. It rejects God's revelation. Look at verse 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If you're here this morning and you're hearing this and you say, yeah, I hear it, but I'm going to still engage in this, then you have to understand that you are not rejecting my words. You are rejecting the God who is the giver of the Holy Spirit. One, as one writer says, who continues to live immorally, rejects God's spirit, rejects God's will, rejects God's call, rejects God's word, and rejects God's pleasures. Beloved, don't reject this. Don't reject this counsel. Hear it, heed it, listen to it. It's the word of God. It is him imploring you to live a life of holiness in this specific area of your life. So I ask you this morning, are you sanctified in this area? Are you flirting with it? Getting close to the line, crossing the line? 
Paul says you need to have a zero tolerance policy. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your instructions. We thank you, Father, that when you teach us about these things, you do not stammer, you do not stutter, there is no equivocation, and we thank you, Lord, for your great wisdom in giving us such clear boundaries. We thank you for those boundaries. We thank you that there is safety within those boundaries. We thank you that there is security and protection, our own good within those boundaries. Lord, I pray for us as a church. I pray that we would be pure in this area. I pray, Father, that we would not hide the sin or closet the sin or live in secret in the sin. May we bring it out in the open. May it be dealt with so we can live a life of holiness and purity before you. And Lord, if there are some here this morning who have fallen into this recently, we, we pray that you will help them to remember your grace. This is not the unpardonable sin. This is a sin committed against Christ, but it is a sin that can be easily forgiven through genuine repentance and brokenness. We thank you for the clarity of the gospel and the, and the grace of the gospel that, that requires us not to be perfect, but it requires us to be broken. And we bring our confession of sin before you, and in Christ and through his sacrifice, we can be easily and quickly and immediately and thoroughly cleansed. So may we be like David in Psalm 51, who prays for forgiveness and genuine brokenness. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for such clear instructions because you love us. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.